Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for a Life Over Coffee presentation where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement at Life Over Coffee is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And I do hope that what I am about to present to you will do exactly that. I want to talk about conflict resolution. In fact, I have titled this presentation, You Have No Choice But to Resolve Conflict with Others. Now, let me begin by just stating that what I'm going to present to you is for Christians only. Only Christians can reconcile. Non-Christians cannot reconcile because the wrath of God is upon non-believers. We cannot forgive a non-believer of their sin because God has not forgiven them of their sin. All sin is a sin against God. And if we forgive them, that sin still remains. It is not reconciled. And because there is a broken relationship between them and God, there is a broken relationship between us and them. The only way that we can be reconciled is for one, all of us to be in the body of Christ and there be no sin between us. Now, if you are a Christian, you can ask God to forgive you of your sin, and you can go to another believer and say, will you forgive me of my sin? And everyone is reconciled, assuming that your friend will forgive you. However, if you are a non-Christian and you go to someone and say, will you forgive me of my sin, that really doesn't resolve the issue because you cannot be right with a person and be wrong with God that just doesn't translate according to Scripture. And so what I am communicating to you is our relationships between brothers and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters and sisters in Christ. A non-Christian, again, we cannot reconcile with them. And so I would say that if you have conflict with a non-Christian, perhaps reaching out to someone to guide you through the conflict would be beneficial. You would want to go to them, if you could, at all possible, and try to get along with them and resolve the conflict, whatever it may be. But as far as forgiveness is concerned, that is removing the guilt, and that guilt cannot be removed until they get their relationship relationship right with God. And so we can get along with non-Christians, but what I am talking about here, and the reason that I've titled it, you have no choice but to resolve conflict with each other. I'm speaking for those in the body of Christ, because if we have iniquity in our heart, if we have sin in our heart toward another person, According to Scripture, we have to make that right, and that is what I want to talk about. Therefore, the big idea is there someone with whom you struggle? And again, within a Christian context. Stated differently, who bothers you? Has someone done something that has brought friction into your relationship? Now, maybe you can think about the brothers and sisters within your own uh, familial unit. Uh, perhaps it is your spouse, maybe a child, a parent. Or as you go into your local church, maybe there is someone in your church, there is friction, there is something between you two, and you're in the body of Christ, and so it has to be resolved. Now maybe you can flip the question around and say, 
Have you done something that has caused friction? Because sin does happen both ways. It is a two-way street. People do things to us, and we do things to people. Here's the big question. Do you know that you have no choice but to resolve the conflict? And so as we work through this, you'll see on the screen that I have uh, tick boxes for you to check. And so you can mentally check these boxes as we move through the entire keynote presentation. And so the first box to check, if both of you are Christians. And so let's say that there is friction, there is something between you and another brother and sister in Christ. Well, one, are you both Christians? And so we check that box and we will assume so. Then in Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I will talk about this a little later on, but I wanted to put it up front initially because I know that some people will say that, well, this is a two-way street also. For me to be right with another person, it also requires them to do something too, and that is exactly right. You see, the thing about the Christian Christian relationships is that we both have an opportunity to respond to God and respond to each other. Christianity is not a passive exercise, and most definitely not when it comes to relationships. But the downside of that is you are dependent upon other people, the other person, to do something. They have to move forward toward you as well. But we're not going to talk about that right now. We want to talk about your role, my role, our responsibility to make the first move. And Paul was saying in Romans 12 that it, let's say that there is something between you and someone else, if possible. You do all that depends upon you. You do what's right, not dependent upon what they may or may not do. You're not hanging heavy expectations of them and say, I will do such and such conditionally. No, we want to do exactly what God wants us to do what is dependent upon us to do, to live peaceably with all. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that every relationship will reconcile. As implied in what I have been saying, there will be some people that will not do their part, and so there you be. You'll be halfway through the process, but they are not reciprocating. And unfortunately, that's how it goes sometimes, maybe often. You can only do so much. And so let's say that both of you are Christians. And now I want to situate this conflict. And I want to situate the conflict in a specific place. And that is the violent death of Christ. Now that sounds strong. I wish I could say it even in a stronger way. Because I want you and me, I want us to feel the heaviness of what I am suggesting. And so I'm not speaking hyperbolically, but I am elevating the, the need for us to reconcile with other human beings, other people in the, the body of Christ. And the most pointed and direct, non-hyperbolic, but yet strong and intense way that I can communicate that is say that our motivation, our context, the reason we want to do this is because we are dialed in to the violent death of Christ. Christ came to reconcile us with himself. Christ also expects that we reconcile with other people in the body of Christ. How did God make reconcili reconciliation happen? He made it through the violent death of Christ. Christ dying on the cross intensifies the urgency and the, the need 
for Christians to reconcile either with God or with God and other people. The text that I have in view here is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 29. Paul said this, For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now we're talking about communion. What we're talking about here is the bread and the wine. We're talking about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was shed. And so Paul is telling us that we must discern the body before we partake of the bread and wine. We must discern the body before we bring consideration about the violent death of Christ. And if there is something in our lives that divides us within the body, and then we participate in the violent death of Christ, symbolically portrayed with the bread and wine, we're drinking and eating judgment to ourselves. When you frame your disagreements in the light of the gospel message, Christ coming and dying on a cross, it does intensify the need to do all that depends on you to rectify it. Now, you can look at this from another angle. An individual who does not want to reconcile has a low view of the gospel. Let me be more specific, because the gospel is in eternity past and eternity future. Christ is the gospel, the good news. He has always existed. But I want to dial in on the gospel, not in eternity past, not in eternity future, not even the resurrection, not even his life on earth, I want to speak to a singular aspect of the gospel, and that is Christ dying on the cross, shedding his blood, his body, giving up his life as a sacrifice. The Christian who is unwilling to do all that depends upon him or her to reconcile with God and to reconcile with others when those relationships are broken by whatever means or whatever the reason is that they are broken— it means that they really have a low view of the violent death of Christ. The very reason Christ came into this world is for reconciliation. And if we are not willing to at least do what is dependent upon us, then we have a low view of the gospel. However, for those of us who cherish the gospel, for those of us who stand in awe of God, for those of us who are debtors to mercy— we feel the intensity, we feel the sobriety, we feel the responsibility before the cross to do all that depends upon us to reconcile with other people. And so Paul is saying that we need to discern the body. And so let's discern the body in context. As a matter of fact, we'll go back. I shared with you verse 29, as you see on the screen. I will read it again for those who are listening by audio. But let's go back to verse number 18, and let's discern the body in context. In verse 18, Paul said this, For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And so Paul is admonishing the Christians at Corinth and saying that when you all come together, that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. And then he goes on down to verse 29, which I shared earlier, for if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is the context. 
there have been many times uh, where Lucia and I have gotten into a disagreement. There was friction in our relationship. There was division in us, between us, which means that there are division in the body of Christ because we are in the body of Christ. Not only are we husband and wife, not only is there a hierarchy where I lead her and she submits and follows me, that's the hierarchical structure within a marriage, but it's also true that we are absolutely equal before God as husband, I mean as brother and sister in Christ. And so when there is friction that comes into our relationship, there is sin that divides us, and that sin has not been neutralized by the power of God, by the power of the gospel. There have been many times where I have walked into the church building on Sunday morning, and I saw those communion plates up front, those silver plates, and it's like, you got to be kidding me. It's like we have brokenness in our relationship because sin is between us. This is just one illustration of what Paul is saying here. I could apply this to myself. For in the first place, when Rick and Lucia come together as a church, and I hear that there are divisions with them, and I believe it in part, then Paul is warning us, for if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the the division that is between you two, husband and wife, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. It is a stark warning. It's not a verse of Scripture that's here that uh, we just sign off on and, and quote it every now and then or read through it in our uh, annual Bible reading and move on to the next passage of Scripture. No, we want to stop here and actually, in this case, stare at the screen, stare at this slide here where these two verses are, or maybe go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and read it, that Paul is situating our conflict and the violent death of Christ and warning us that if we do not resolve that conflict, we are bringing judgment on ourselves. Which leads to a question, how do you interrelate with each other? And so as you think about the people within your local church, maybe brothers and sisters online, maybe brothers and sisters within your own family, without being too introspective, but if the Spirit of God is bringing something to your mind, maybe James 4, 17 would be in play here. For him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it would be sin. And so we want to make a honest evaluation, not a hyper-evaluation where we just spend so much time wallowing in our sin and, and on some kind of morbid sin hunt, not suggesting that at all. But just thinking through, is everything okay with you and someone else in the body that if there is a division that needs to be worked out, knowing that you can only go halfway, you can only do your part, what depends upon you? You see, God judges stuff under the rug, meaning metaphorically that the tendency could be to kick things uh, or to, yeah, to kick things under the rug. I was going to also say kick things under, uh, kick the can down the road as I bring in multiple metaphors here to communicate that we can't kick things down the road or shove things up under the rug as though they do not exist because God sees in the, the dark. As we read in Hebrews 4 that he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Now, we may think that we have hidden it under the rug, but we have to recognize that God, the omniscient one, knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and he knows that if we are right with other people. Now, there could be a timing thing involved here. Let's say that there's some brokenness in a relationship that you have, 
but and you want to reconcile it. And so you're thinking through, well, what depends upon me? You're not kicking the can down the road. You're not doing that at all. Your motivation is right, but this is not the right time. But you plan to, at the right time, to bring this to their attention and try to work through the relationship. And so you want to make sure that you're always leaning in the right direction, that we are not hiding things under the rug, that we're not retreating from our responsibility, but we're leaning into it, even though today or next week might not be the proper time, but you're absolutely praying about it, doing all that depends upon you, and hoping for some future day that you can step into this and see if you can reconcile. God judges under the rug. He sees in the dark discerning the whole body. And so as we open up our lens and think about the body of Christ, of course, that means our family. It means our friends, our extended family. It means the workplace. It means the church, of course. And so as you spend time, and I would imagine there's really nothing else for me to say here, the Spirit of God has already identified somebody in your life that you need to reconcile with, or he hasn't, And if he hasn't, praise God that you're in that place and you want to continue to walk in that sobriety as you situate your relationships in the violent death of Christ. And so when that time comes when there is friction, you have these ideas and thoughts rolling around in your mind, and that will create the urgency to want to reconcile as fast as you possibly can. For others who are listening here, it's like, yeah, there's somebody. I know what I need to do. And so now you begin to strategically plan how you can work toward reconciling, assuming that the other person will participate with you. Participating together, this idea of communion symbolizes participating together. It is actually the word koinonia. Koinonia is the fancy Greek word. It means communion, communication, community, fellowship, participating In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about participation in the Spirit. That is the idea of koinonia. And so what we're talking about here is participating together, and there cannot be friction in our lives, or we will not be able to participate in true koinonia. We may be in the same building. We may be in the same family. We may be at the same party. We may be doing similar things, but there is something between us, and we're truly, genuinely, authentically not participating together. Again, the idea here is communion, and that is what Paul was talking about in the 11th chapter of Corinthians. It's like two cells actively living in your body, and you want those those cells to be healthy, cooperating together, participating together, and that gives you a healthy physical body. That's the idea that we're talking about here. And we know that disharmony wreaks havoc on the body. I would imagine that every one of you have experienced that. There is something that came between you and somebody else. It's kind of a yucky feeling. It's kind of, oh, man, I don't like how this feels. The two active cells in the body have some hostility between them. It could even be passive. But you know that there's something there that is not right. It just doesn't feel right. And there are different levels of disharmony. Sometimes it can really be harsh and unkind as two combatants go at it. Well, that is a body that is is on the verge of some major sickness, if not death, 
But then there can be these low-level disharmonious moments in our lives, these two cells that it's not major cancer here, uh, but yet our bodies are not right, and we feel it, and we know that something is wrong, and that's what disharmony does between two cells. It's what it does between two believers in the body of Christ, whether it's a local church, a family, or any other place where these two cells or these two individuals should be participating together in a harmonic-type way. It does cause you to wonder about the health of the body of Christ, the way some believers talk to others online. It is as though they dissociate what they do online, as though it's a select category that permits complaining, grumbling, gossip, and slander. Perhaps scrolling through your more recent comments online would reveal your heart toward the body of Christ. This is a weak spot for me, particularly because, and again, when I say this, I don't mean it as an excuse. I'm not saying that at all. But as a factual statement, because of the public nature of what I do, I I receive a, a, a huge amount of unkindness And it has taken me many, many years to slow down, to pump the brakes before I impulsively respond to someone. And I can't say that I do that successfully even today at all times. I do move slower than I used to. I do govern my mouth more than I used to, or maybe my keyboard more than I used to. But there, with some people, I read some things online, the way that people talk. And, and I just wonder about the health of the body of Christ. There is a lot of online grumbling, complaining, gossip, slander, things that we would not say necessarily to the person who is in front of us. It's called the disinhibition effect, to where we're less inhibited online to say things, and it's things that we would not say to their face. And so we hide behind our keyboards 2,000 miles away from the individual and bang out our harshness on the keyboard and send it through cyberspace. And it lands on their platform or on their social media platform. And it's just unkind, grumbling. And, and it would probably do us all well just to pause and, and think through. And one of the things... I try to do, again, not successfully at all times, is to think about that person sitting across from me and not in cyberspace where I cannot see them. So maybe that would be a good exercise to scroll through your recent comments online, or maybe when the platform, when platforms like say Facebook, when they bring your memories up from 10 or 11 years ago and just read your comments to see if there has been some maturity over a decade of commenting online. There should be some sanctification, some maturity, some progressive sanctification in our online communication. But I know for many, there is a lot of room to grow, and I have room to grow too. But it is something for us to consider, especially when we situate our comments in the violent death of Christ. And so the question here, are you the cause of body healing or body division? Straightforward question. Does your life, do your words, your behavior, does it cause body healing in the body of Christ, or is it divisive? Now, this is not something that you can just tick the box and say, 
uh, good. I, I'm good with this, and, and I'm the cause of body healing because tomorrow there will be something that will come across uh, your computer screen or come into your life that will tempt you uh, to do something divisive or to say something unkind. And so this is a die daily kind of thing. This is a take up your cross every day kind of thing. And so how do you diagnose yourself as you think about your interaction within the body of Christ? One of the ways to do this, to stay in context of what Paul was saying in Corinthians, are you able to offer the cup and the bread to any believer? Now, for some of you, you have to suspend your imagination for just a second because of how you believe and practice communion. Some people have a, a tighter, stricter definition of how communion should happen. So I'm just using this as an illustration, not in the sense is that this is how you should do communion. But if you could go with me for just a moment in a hypothetical sense, think about it this way as an illustration. Let's say that you have someone in the body of Christ and that you offer them the cup, the blood of Christ and you offer them the bread, and they do the same to you. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you. this is how you do communion, but I'm illustrating, trying to illustrate the point that Paul is communicating in Corinthians, that let's take the person that maybe you have in mind that you have division with. Can you honestly do this? Like give them the cup and the bread, and, and then you receive it from them? Now, there, there, there could be some problems here because if there is division and you can do this, then I would say that the violent death of Christ is not as sobering as it should be. I would say that the violent death of Christ is not as vivid and impacting as it should be if you can do communion with someone that you have division with. And so you think about that person coming to you, and it's like, no. Uh, we cannot do communion together because we're bringing judgment on ourselves because there is something between us. Now, that is the way that we should be thinking, assuming that there is division between two believers. And so the question would be, what would prohibit you from participating in communion? Having that biblical fellowship with another person as you come before the table, as you are thinking about meditating on the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, his broken body, as you focus on the violent death of Christ, what would prohibit you? Uh, there have been many times, as I illustrated earlier, when I walked in the building and there was division between my wife and I. And when that happened, it's like, no, we cannot do this. I cannot do this. Or we need to reconcile. And that reconciliation needs to be genuine, not just as a utility so that I can do communion so nobody will look at me and my fear of man will kick in because they see me allowing the plate to pass before me. It cannot be fear of man motivated. It has to be a genuine brokenness before God. Dear God, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And dear wife, I have sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Vertically and horizontally, transactionally, there is forgiveness asked for and forgiveness received. There is reconciliation between God and man or God and wife in this case. Then you can enter in uh, to the communion. You, you can come before the table and participate in the blood, in the blood and the bread the body of Christ. To drink and eat is to remember the grace that God extended to you. 
And as we remember that grace, I'm thinking about Matthew 18 here, verse 35, right around there, where the man said that I have forgiven you all this debt. Why can't you forgive him who owed you so little? Why can't you have mercy on him as I had mercy on you? And so the gospel must drive us to extend mercy to others as God has extended mercy to us. And so when we come before the table to eat and to drink, we're thinking about the grace that God extended to us, and that should humble our hearts, melt any friction between us and another person, and motivate us to do everything, anything that depends upon us to reconcile with that other believer. And so the question is, where do you begin? I would imagine that some people would say, but you don't understand, end quote. And I do understand. I understand that I don't understand. Meaning I don't understand exactly what's going on between you and the other person. I get it. Yeah, right. I don't know the story. I don't know the context. I don't know what they did. I don't know what you did. I don't know all the dynamics of the relationship. You're right. I don't understand. I don't know what happened. I don't know what's going on. I agree with that statement. However, that is not where we are to begin. The question is, where do you begin? And where we begin is not with the other person. Where we begin is with the log in our eye. You know the text, Matthew 7, verses 3, 4, and 5. This is always the starting point, especially when there is conflict in our lives. There is a time to go speck fishing. There is a time to deal with the speck that is in the other person's eye. But we have to do careful examination of our own lives, our own motivations, the words that we use, the actions that we exhibited. We want to begin with the log in our eye. Therefore, our response should be, wow, I love this perspective. I want to examine my heart to see if there is any iniquity in me. It's not about my brother, primarily, meaning... It is about my brother, secondarily, but it's not about my brother primarily, O Lord, but it starts with me. I stand in the need of prayer, and that is the response of the humble. That is where we start. When you're talking to someone about conflict resolution, and if the first thing out of their mouth is, but you do not understand, well, agree with them 100%. I agree, but we're talking about starting places. You can come back later. There is a time to talk about the nuances and the exceptions, but it's not the first thing. And so we have to get this right. How we start will determine how we end. And if we start with the spec, if we start with what they did, then we're starting at the wrong place. And because of that, we have not calibrated our motives. We haven't truly examined our hearts, our words, our deeds. We're jumping over those links in the chain, and we're starting at the midpoint with what they did. And that is not how you begin conflict resolution. And so working through difficulty, again, as I said earlier, there is only so much that you can do. This is why Romans twelve eighteen has to be part of all conflict resolution. Now, it is not an excuse. It is just a statement of reality because there will be times when you can't transact forgiveness with someone. Sin is just not that cooperative. Sin is not neat to where it can be carefully packaged and you can always come to a right conclusion and it ends like every movie the way we want every movie to end, a happy ending, and that's just not how it happens. 
Sometimes what you have is that you can forgive them only attitudinally, meaning you cannot transact forgiveness with them. Perhaps these are new words for some of you, and so I'll briefly walk through them. Even though I do cover these extensively in my training, The Doctrine of Repentance, because forgiveness is a huge aspect in the the repentance process, and so I do talk about that. Of course, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com, and you can type in transactional forgiveness or attitudinal forgiveness, and you will be able to gain a lot of information there, what these two ideas are. But transactional forgiveness sounds like what it is. It is the asking and the receiving of forgiveness is a transaction. I was saying this earlier, that within the Christian construct, both people have to participate The offended and the offender work together. This is why we don't apologize. This is why we don't say, I'm sorry. When we apologize or say, I'm sorry, that is a one-sided conversation, and the other person is not asked to engage. As Christians, we can go way farther than I'm sorry. We can do so much better than I'm sorry. We can actually step into the robustness of forgiveness, but that requires both people to get in the circle and make the exchange. And so the offender, the one who did wrong, will ask, will you forgive me? They're not apologizing. They're not saying, I'm sorry. When you say, I'm sorry, it doesn't require anything from the other person. Because we can do so much better, we do require something of the other person. We are asking them to do something I'm not going to say I'm sorry and let that passive action stand and not allowing you the opportunity to work through whatever hurt that you have to work through and to reach out your hand and offer genuine forgiveness back. And so we say, will you forgive me? And then the offended one says, I forgive you. And that is a transaction. Sometimes you can only forgive them attitudinally, like, if they won't participate, they're not going to, they're not going to allow, they're not going to forgive you. They're, they're going to hold it against you. You have done what you could do. This is Romans 12, 18. You've done all that depends upon you. You said, will you forgive me? But they did not. Well, then what you can do, attitudinally, you can forgive them in your heart. Now, that doesn't remove the issue but it allows you not to be managed by it. And again, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So sometimes the circle will stay broken, unfortunately, regrettably. Sometimes all relationships are not mended. Uh, Let me give you an illustration of this. Sin disallows perfect harmony. As I said, sin does not play neat, doesn't play fair. It cannot be contained. Sin is like cancer, and sometimes it can spread, and it can break things in an irreparable way. They cannot be mended again. An illustration of this, to talk about attitudinal forgiveness, I could not reconcile with my dad. And the reason that I could not reconcile with my dad, let me lay them out for you. We were both unbelievers, one. Two, he died before I was a Christian. So we were both unbelievers. He died in 1978. God regenerated me in 1984. So you have two unbelievers prior to 1984. 
God's wrath was bearing down upon us, according to John 3.36, and, of course, many other passages that speak to our broken relationship with God. We were not forgiven of our sin. Our sin remains, and so we could not clean up our sin between us. We could not forensically uh, remove our sin and have some kind of justification to where our sin is removed because God has not forgiven us of our sin, and there were many sins between us. And so we were unbelievers, and so there's no way we can reconcile. Then he died before I was a Christian. So he died in 1978, and then I became a Christian in 1984. Well, in 1984, where I could go to him and say, Dad, would you forgive me for my sins against you and whatever that list may be? Well, that could not happen because, again, he died. And then finally, if he had not died but not become a believer if he were still alive today. There would always be incomplete reconciliation because the wrath of God would still be upon him. Now, this is where attitudinal forgiveness comes in play for me because the disruption in our relationship, because of the reasons that you see here on the screen, the ones that I've mentioned, our relationship was permanently disrupted. There is no way that we could reconcile because we can't remove sin. Only God can. But I don't want to be managed by his sin against me or my sin against him. And so I can't go to him and ask him for forgiveness. He can't come to me and ask me for forgiveness. But I do not want to be managed by the sin that is between us. And so I've asked God to help me to have a heart of forgiveness toward my dad. Though I know that we'll never be able to transact forgiveness, I want to have an attitude of forgiveness that is as far as I can go. Now, there are other situations where uh, this would apply, attitudinal forgiveness. One is, I mean, the person could be alive, and as I stated earlier, they are unwilling to transact forgiveness with you. They're absolutely unwilling to transact forgiveness with you. And so there's nothing you can do. You can't make them that is a God-motivated, Spirit-generated, Spirit-empowered thing that happens inside of them that, that motivates them to want to come to you and to fully reconcile with you. But if they don't want to do that, you do not want to be managed by their sin. Now, there are a lot of Christians who are managed by the sin of other people. There are a lot of Christians who are managed by the sin of other people who have been dead for many decades, like in my dad's case. He's been dead since 1978. That is multiple decades now, and you'll find that some people— they still carry that sin in, that, in their hearts, the offenses in their heart. Now, what that does, uh, that makes them bitter people, grumbling, complaining people. They live in the shadow. It's actually worse than that. The shadows are in their heart. The darkness is in their heart. They're still managed by what people did to them so long ago. Now, there's another context where you would not ask an offender and the offended to come together and to transact forgiveness, and that would be in the case of sexual abuse. So let's say that your daughter or one of our daughters was sexually abused by someone. It would be a horrendous thing for me to ask one of them to go and to sit in a room with the person who sexually abused them, and you work through transactional forgiveness. That's just a horrific thing to think about, and you would not do that. What I would do among many things, is that I would work with them, uh, our daughter, your daughter, the person who is sexually abused, and I would want them to come to the place to where they have an attitude of forgiveness toward that person, to where they're not managed by it because 
that also happens as well. People who have been victimized by other individuals, they carry that in their heart. And we are not able to carry our sin, and we're not able to carry the sin of anyone else. We're not built to carry sin. There's only one true victim. The word victim means vicarious from an etymological study of that word. Jesus was the vicarious sufferer. He is the true victim. He is the only one that is able to carry and abolish sin. We cannot. And so, therefore, what we want to do is we want to transact forgiveness so it can be forgiven, be removed. And then in some cases, as I've illustrated here, where you cannot transact forgiveness, you literally cannot or you should not in the case of sexual abuse, you still do not want to carry their sin in your soul because it will create a debilitating effect on the person's soul. And so there are situations to where you cannot reconcile. However, because we are Christians, we do not have to be managed by what other people have done to us. Full biblical reconciliation is both people being believers and pursuing each other until the gospel completely neutralizes the sin by its power. And that is the goal. And according to the title of this presentation, we have no choice. And the reason we have no choice is because we're situating our need to reconcile in the violent death of Christ. And so let's say that sin disallows perfect harmony. Let's say that you cannot reconcile, and it's legit for whatever reason reasons there are. There's no transactional forgiveness. If you have done all that you can do, then you rest. You rest. Now, I've written an article at Life Over Coffee, and for those of you who struggle with this, to where you cannot reconcile with someone for whatever reason, and I've used the illustration of my dad, you need to wrestle through that. Because the reconciliation is never going to happen, but you have to get to the place to where you can rest. And so there's an article on our website called, uh, The Reason I Stopped Hating My Dad. That's pretty close to the title of it. The reason I stopped hating my dad. And in that article, I worked through how I came to a place of of rest to where I was not managed by the things that he did to me as a young child. Now, at the heart of the matter is that I really had to come to terms with the gospel. I had to come to terms with the the number one question is for me that I had to wrestle with, who is the biggest sinner that I know? Is it my dad or is it me? Well, without question, I am the chief of sinners. Without question, I am the foremost sinner. The Apostle Paul died, and he left a vacancy on the chief sinner seat, the foremost sinner seat, and I ascended to the throne. I am the biggest sinner that I know because I know me better than anyone else. And if God has forgiven me of all of my sin, then we're going back to Matthew 18, verse 35. Can you not have mercy on him? When I had mercy on you, there was nothing that my dad did to me, and there's nothing that my dad could do for me, even if he was still alive, that is worse than what I have done to Christ. And so I began to wrestle with the ramifications of the gospel and what my sin did to Christ. I put Christ on the tree. All other sins are secondary in that sense. And so as I recognized that Christ forgave me of my sin, at least I could have a heart of forgiveness. I can have an attitude of forgiveness toward my dad. And so I would encourage you that if you struggle this way, and I know that many do, I've been doing biblical counseling for a minute or two, 
And I know there are a lot of people that are carrying the hurts sometimes for an extended period of time, and that is unfortunate, and they haven't learned to come to a place of rest. One of the ways that you can test this with those within your sphere of influence is just listen how they talk about other people. Are they harsh? Are they unkind? Are they critical? Are they grumbling? Do they have a mean-spirited attitude? What do their words about offenders communicate to you? And I would trust as you hear me talk about my dad, I, I do not hold back as far as what our relationship was like, but I trust that you do not hear an angry heart, an angry spirit, a grumbly spirit, and you, and you don't. Is not in my heart. I don't, I don't have that attitude toward my dad. And that's one of the ways that you can tell. And so as you listen to people talk, without judging them, but you're being discerning. And so the people that you love, you want to discern them. And as you hear them talk about people who offended them, did something wrong with them, perhaps God would use you to go to them and to talk to them and say, hey, you're my brother. And as I listen, this is what it sounds like. And so Maybe you could talk and maybe you could help them. Maybe they would grow in their self-awareness and maybe they will have a moment of transparency and honesty about what's going on in their own heart and recognize that, you know, I really am offended. I am hurt and I am sinning by how I'm responding to that person. And you can hear the grumbling coming out of my heart. And that would be one way that you could help them because they are not in a place of rest. They have soul noise and you can hear the soul noise coming out of their mouths they haven't done all that they can do, and maybe you would be the person to come alongside them and to help them to get to a place of rest, even if they cannot reconcile with their brother or sister. The relationship that you have with the Lord and other believers are inseparably intertwined. Did you know that you cannot dichotomize, divide in two, how you relate to God and others? Do not think that you're right with God when you're not right with someone in the body of Christ, we have no choice but to resolve our conflict with one another, doing all that is dependent upon us. And so I want to wrap up this presentation by asking you a few questions, trusting that the Lord will use these moments. Perchance there is anything in your life between you and another person. Question number one, how do your thoughts about another believer enhance or prohibit koinonia in the body of Christ. Think about someone that you like, that you love, that you enjoy being around. You can actually feel a gravitational pull toward them, a proportion uh, as you move toward him or her, that you want to be with them because it's an enhanced relationship. There's nothing between you. There's nothing to repel you. There's nothing uh, to cause you when you're uh, walking toward each other in the church building, for example, and then you all of a sudden or they all of a sudden dart to the right or the left because there's a polarization between you. No, it's not like that because you'd like that person. Well, there could be a situation to where you don't feel that same gravitational pull, that there's a definite polarity uh, between you and them that prohibits quantity in the body of Christ. And the koinonia is a good word because it's a, it's a rich word. You cannot participate together. You cannot offer them the bread and wine in my illustration. Come together and, 
and honestly, genuinely say there is not one thing between us. We are in the body of Christ, and we're two active, healthy cells. And so would you just spend some time thinking about what are your thoughts about another believer? And I would encourage you to think both ways. Those whom you love and you just you see them in the building and you start moving toward them. And then someone else you see in the building and there's reticence between you and them. Well, that's the one that you want to do business with the Lord first, hoping that you can actually do business with the individual as well. Is there a believer whom you could not give the cup and bread and receive the same from them? Now, these questions would be good to talk to uh, with someone that you love and where there's no friction between you two. These questions would be good in a small group for the small group leader to lead and and just put these questions out there in the context in which I have presented them, maybe even showing this presentation uh, to them, and then getting to the point here to where now you just stop the video and let's just work through the questions and see what happens and how people... uh, have a moment of transparency and honesty to where they can communicate within the small group and then pray with each other. And then maybe there can be some helpful accountability if one person in the group is struggling with with someone in the body of Christ. Number three, if you let inappropriate thoughts go, why? What do you need to do to make it right with you, the Lord, and another believer. And I would want you to see this triad here, because again, we can't be right with God and be wrong with a believer. We can't be wrong with someone else and be right with God. You can say it either way. But we are participating together in the body of Christ. We are in Christ's body, and so we have to be right with Him. Now, if we're not right with someone else, then we're not right with him because we're aggravating the body of Christ because of the sin that has come between us and someone else. And so you have inappropriate thoughts and you just let them go toward that other believer, then you, you really need to stop and wrestle with that and ask the appropriate questions to work through why you think this way about this person. How meaningful is the violent death of Christ to you? Now, this is really something to ponder. I think sometimes that we can be so familiar with something that it just doesn't, it has more of a ritualistic and traditional impact on our lives, but not a robust and rich impact on our lives. And so it just becomes part of a rote behavior, a rote religion and, and we don't live in a, a hyperbolic state of understanding of what this means. It, it's important that we study the cross of Christ and think about what he did, just reading the Gospels about his death in all four Gospels, just reading those small uh, pericopes in each one of the Gospels about his death and really focusing on it, thanking him for what he did on the cross, studying those passages. I think renewing our minds that way because it's so easy to slip into rote religion, and you know what I mean. We can leave our first love. Perhaps some of you have vivid experiences of that as you thought about the violent death of Christ in the early moments of your salvation walk with him, and it was so rich to you. It was horrifying, and it was victorious, all wrapped up in one, that he would die on the cross for us to where it humbled us, to where we wanted to follow him in all matters. 
but the meaningfulness of the violent death of Christ, sometimes it can go gray, and, and eventually it, it just becomes part of our speak, but it's not really revolutionizing our heart and keeping it rich in our hearts. The way that you can examine the meaningful of meaningfulness of his death is by how you respond to others practically. And I don't want to be judgmental here about anyone. I don't, I don't want to put anyone in your mind, but I think it would be appropriate to think how easily we can just dismiss people or easily we can carry sin in our heart and not even call it sin. We just move on uh, and and don't resolve the conflict that's between us. We can unfriend online and we can unfriend in our real spaces where we live with other people because, again, we're not riveted to the gospel, specifically the cross, the violent death of Christ. That is not the motiva- motivating means that encourages us to move toward reconciliation with other people. Now, perhaps battles in your soul, the soul noise that you have, don't have anything to do with another person, but it's your sinful habits. You see, these things can separate you from the body of Christ as well. When I have sin in my life, and you probably have had this experience, that the temptation is, is, is to isolate. When there's sin in our lives, the temptation is to isolate, to move away from God and to move away from God's body. Now you'll see this with people who used to be part of the local church, and then sin came into their life, and they're not part of the local church. It is really just that black and white. What happened? Well, sin divided. Sin created disharmony. And maybe the sin had nothing to do with anybody else. It's not that they need to reconcile because friction came between them and another individual, but they decided that they wanted to live with sin, in sin. They decided they wanted to do what they wanted to do, and what they want to do is, is a disharmonic relationship between them and God. Well, that's going to tempt them to pull away from God's body because when they come to the local church meeting and hear the preaching of the word and interacting with other believers, I mean, you'll be able to tell it's just not right. There is something between us, and it may have nothing to do with you. It's a self-created, self-sabotaging wedge that they put between you and them, and it's their sin that they volitionally chose to do and that wedge is there, and they will not be able to live that way. That wedge will will push them farther and farther if they don't repent, or it could be that they become very comfortable living that way. It could be that they're comfortable with their sin, and they've rationalized it or justified it to the degree that their conscience is now muted or hard, and their conscience does not bother them, and so they can come and participate in the local church, but your conscience is not like their conscience. And you can tell there is something wrong. I don't know what it is. I'm not being judgmental of my brother or my sister, but there is something wrong uh, because there's something dynamic that's missing in this relationship. There is a fissure between you and them. And in this case, according to this question that I'm asking, it has nothing to do with you, but it is their sin, and they've hardened their heart, and they're okay being in the body of Christ, specifically in a local church setting, but you know that there's something wrong. Now, with an individual like that, you want to spend time with them to encourage them, to motivate them, to see if you can get inside 
and help them. Maybe the Spirit of God would use you to waken them up, to break the crustiness around their heart and make their conscience alive again to where there will be an appropriate sensitivity to their own sin. Sometimes the battles in our soul have nothing to do with another person, but it's our own sinful habits. And then finally, how is the violent death of Christ motivating you to do all that depends on you to make things right with God and others? This is not formulaic. I'm not suggesting that if you do all that depends upon you, then everybody will reciprocate. And we'll all shake hands, we'll all hug, we'll all be praying together, be doing communion together, and everything ends well. This is not a movie. In some cases, there will be aggravation at the end. There will be jagged edges is what I mean, that everything will not be hermetically sealed, and, and we'll all be happy, and we ride off into the sunset, and it's a beautiful ending. In many cases, that's not the case, but that's not the question. What we do is we water and plant. We leave the growth uh, to God. God is the one that brings the healing. God is the one that grants repentance, and if he's not granting it to someone else, that's not our concern that way. That is not our job. And so we are released from that kind of pressure. And we can truly rest, even though uh, the body is not completely healed, but it has virtually nothing to do with you. So the question is, how is the violent death of Christ motivating you to do all that depends upon you to make things right with God? The big idea in this presentation is, is there someone with whom you struggle? Stated differently, who bothers you? Who are you annoyed with? Is there something there that you need to take care of? Has someone done something that has brought friction into your relationship? Or we spin things around. Alternatively, have you done something that has caused friction? Did you know you have no choice but to resolve the conflict? Before I let you go, if you don't mind hanging on for another minute, I would encourage you, if you would, I appeal to you rather, would you pray for our ministry? Would you pray for lifeovercoffee.com? That is our address. Our ministry name is Life Over Coffee. We believe that any two people can come together and work through their issues, whatever they may be, over coffee. And for those of you who don't like coffee, you can do it over water. You can do it over kombucha, if you please. But we believe that we can work through our problems. And what we do is we create resources, help, hope and help for you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. Every day we go around the world and we do that by prayer. And so if you would make us as part of your uh, prayer ministry, I would really appreciate it. We are cyber missionaries. Uh, we are, we're nomadic missionaries wandering around the world, and it is a huge kindness of God. Actually, it's quite stunning, to be honest with you. When we started the ministry in 2008, I had no idea that it would be anything like what we're doing today. But that is on prayer. That is because people have been praying, and I would encourage you to pray. Now, you can do more. You can follow us on socials wherever you find us. And if that is your social media platform, then please follow us and share our resources with others. You're welcome to do that. Almost all of our resources are free. And I would find no greater joy if you would just say, hey, I want you to watch this. Their mission statement says that they create it's hope and help for you and others. 
And so I want you to share our content with others. And then some of you, uh, you can actually support or donate to our ministry, and I would encourage you to do that. Not only is our ministry held up by prayer, it is underwritten by finances. Because our resources are free, we are 100% dependent on the generosity of the body of Christ. And so if you are in a place, I don't want you to be guilted by it, not at all, but if you're able you can support us monthly or annually or a one-time donation. A local church could take us on the way that they take on missionaries because that's what we are. And if you believe in what we do and have benefited from it and you're in a position to help us in a recurring kind of way or a one-time donation, I appeal to you to help us. We would love for you to do that. Pray for us, underwrite us financially, and that would be fantastic. Now, for some of you who want more in-depth help, we have an online mastermind program. It's an LMS, a learning management system. You can do 100% of it online, and it is self-paced. And so you weave it into your life, and you work it, and it is supervised, and you're welcome to take our Mastermind program. And if you have questions about that, go to lifeovercoffee.com, and we have some information that's free that you can go through, and it will answer pretty much all of your questions. The title of this presentation is You Have No Choice but to resolve conflict with others. Thank you so much for watching. My name is Rick Thomas, and you can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. We do have forums, active forums, private forums for those who support our ministry. That's one of the privileges of membership. And so if you would like to interact with me in a dialogue kind of way and our team, you can do that as a supporting member, lifeovercoffee.com. We have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.